Open your Bibles quickly to First Chronicles chapter 28. And let's grab our text from that place that reminds us of the blessing we have to have the New Testament Scriptures. We go to the Old to see the blessing that God gave David, but we apply that to our blessing of having the 27 books of our New Testament. We are considering the subject of deacons. And we want to purge our minds from all thoughts of men on the subject to fill our minds only with what the Bible has to tell us. In First Chronicles chapter 28, when David is describing the temple in all of its particulars for Solomon to build, he said in verse 19, All this, said David, the Lord made me understand in writing by his hand upon me, even all the works of this pattern. God gave David a blueprint for Solomon's temple. All the furniture, all the dimensions, all the weights of the metals that were to make those particular items that made Solomon's temple so beautiful and glorious, God gave to David with his hand upon him in writing. He gave him a pattern to follow. And it was a blueprint. It was a very precise pattern measured right down to the talents and shekels of weight that were to be used. Let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and see that the Apostle Paul, by the inspiration of God, has given Timothy and us the same thing for our temple. The local church that God has made us members of, living stones in the temple of our God, in this local church. First Timothy chapter 3 and verse 14. These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Paul put in writing... We don't have the magisterium of the Roman Catholic Church that tells people what to believe, even though it may contradict the Bible. We have a written pattern from God on how a New Testament church is to be ordered, and it was put in writing by our brother Paul, by God's hand upon him and that inspiration. Let's turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 6. We need not review too much, but I do want the whole church, including our children, well established in what the Bible teaches about deacons. When were deacons instituted? They were instituted when the Jerusalem church had well passed the 20,000 member mark and had hundreds and hundreds of widows. And there was a conflict that arose among those widows as to their daily care and the daily provision for them. And so the apostles made a judgment by inspiration, by the Holy Spirit of God, that there needed to be a division of labor so that all could benefit. Let's read Acts 6. And in those days, verse 1, And in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews, because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed... They laid their hands on them, and the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, 
and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. Amen and amen. This is history. His story of his dealings with his church in all nations. And this is his church in the city of Jerusalem. I do want to make the point again, and I hope everyone can hear me, what it says in verse 5. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. A church of over 20,000 members, it could easily have been 50,000. If you read the first five chapters of this history book called the Acts of the Apostles, we're all happy with the apostles' procedure for taking care of the widow problem. They were all happy with it. And we want our church to be totally happy with what we end up with in deacons. Therefore, we must all submit ourselves to the Word of God and agree to get along. As you look out from among you, some men of honest report and so forth, to be the deacons of this assembly. When were they instituted? Right here, based on a need. They are not just a flattering title for old men. They are not just to keep young men in the assembly and from walking away. There is a need here in Jerusalem, and it was because of that need that deacons were instituted. How were they instituted? And how many were there? Well, the apostles said seven. But that doesn't mean a church needs to have seven, specifically, because how many churches have that many widows and how much to do, and and as much to do as the church of Jerusalem did. So we believe that it's a function of need on how many deacons. And you know a church can get along right well when it's small, with members doing unofficial tasks, And the church can run very smoothly without any deacons at all. They didn't have deacons here for a while in in Acts. When Paul left Titus in Crete, he told them to ordain elders, and they're defined there in Titus 1 as bishops. Didn't say anything about deacons in those churches. You don't need deacons until there's a need. So every church has to decide how many deacons do we need. Would they be full-time or part-time deacons? You know, these seven here in Acts chapter 6 could easily have been full-time. As I told you last Sunday, when you consider the size of that church and the responsibility upon them to take care of hundreds or maybe thousands of widows with a daily portion for their maintenance. How are they selected? The congregation looks out from among themselves the men that meet the qualifications that are taught to them by the bishop. They then set those men out, and they're ordained, which means to lay the hands on and to charge them with their duties and to make a public designation of them to their new office of being a deacon. What do deacons do? They do anything that distracts the ministers of the Word from the Word of God in prayer. It's that simple. Anything that would distract needs to be taken away from those that God has called to study Read, exhort, teach, and pray for the spiritual needs of the church. Where we left off last Lord's Day was the qualifications, and we want to take up with them. In Acts chapter 6, we have about four of them, and that's where we want to review quickly, and then we'll go to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Do not let this subject bore you. Let every man and every woman, where it's applicable, crave these qualifications. Do you know that there is a lusting and a coveting that God endorses? In 1 Corinthians 12 and 31, our beloved brother Paul said, covet earnestly. That's serious lusting. Covet earnestly the best gifts. And so as we go through these qualifications, every man, every young man, every woman, every girl should be measuring themselves as well. Not only should you be thinking of men that would fit the office of deacon, but let's ask ourselves, am I that way? 
These must be very high and noble traits that God would list in his inspired scriptures. Therefore, I want to I hear the definition of each one. I wonder if God approves me by this one. I wonder if others approve me by this one. Our goal as the children of God and the brothers of the Lord Jesus Christ is to grow in favor with God and men. And this tells us how to do it by these qualifications. Verse 3, Acts chapter 6 and verse 3. Wherefore, brethren, look ye, the plural church, all the members, look ye out among you seven men, seven men. Okay, we have our first qualification, seven men. There are no official deaconesses in the New Testament. They were to look out seven men. And when this church, the saying pleased the whole multitude, so there was a unanimous selection of seven men. men. And we find their names listed in verse 5. And they're all men. Because they followed the direction of the apostles. Paul is going to tell Timothy shortly that they all need to be the husband of one wife. You know, until recently, everyone understood that. You know, now in our nation, I guess a woman can be the husband of one wife. Or would she be the wife of one wife? If it was a same-sex marriage corrupting the ordinance of God, as our nation now tries to protect in certain states. There to be men. Phoebe and other noble women like her that are listed in places like Romans 16 were unofficial helpers of the apostle and the churches of Jesus Christ. They had important roles. Look at Romans 16. I want you to love Phoebe. The Holy Spirit wouldn't have put Phoebe in the Bible unless there was encouragement here for women. But their role is an unofficial one, not an official one. Official means that you are in an office, a formal office, by public designation, assignment, and appointment. Unofficial means that you are doing tasks without an office. Romans 16. There's lots of women listed in Romans 16. We'll just grab the first one. I commend unto you Phoebe, our sister, which is a servant of the church, which is at Sencria, that ye receive her in the Lord as becometh saints, and that ye assist her in whatsoever business she hath need of you. For she hath been a succorer of many, and of myself also. That is high praise for a woman. There is no reason for you women to be discouraged, nor think that you don't have a place in the house of God. It's just unofficial. Phoebe was one of those women. And in the Word of God, we are still talking about Phoebe 2,000 years later. Because God wanted us to know about her. And she had business to do at some of the... She was raising money, taking money, dispensing money at the direction of apostles. She was a helper. She did things. She had a business needs. But it was unofficial. But when you get Paul's endorsement like this, it's still a great thing to read. They're men. Back to Acts chapter 6 and verse 3. They're men. So above all, every man should be measuring himself by these qualifications. Do you measure up by these standards? Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report. Honest report means you have a reputation of honesty. You deal carefully and with integrity. In all your transactions, there's no deception, there's no theft, there's no exaggeration. You are of honest report. And everyone knows that. Honest report. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, as we look at a cross-reference for this particular prerequisite for being a deacon. If the church is going to trust men with the apportionment of their giving, the reception, the accounting, and the distribution of funds, then men need to be of honest report. And so we start right off with their integrity. That the church can, 
The church can bring them forward, they can be ordained, and the church can rest. That church funds will be handled very discreetly, carefully, accurately, and honestly. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. The Apostle Paul is soliciting funds out of the Corinthian church in Achaia, which is southern Greece. And he's going to have those funds carried across the Mediterranean Sea and distributed to the poor saints in Jerusalem. And Paul, because he's an inspired apostle, is always careful in financial dealings. So here's what he tells the Corinthians. Verse 18. And we have sent with him, that's with Titus. Titus is coming. And we have sent with him the brother whose praise is in the gospel throughout all the churches. And not that only, but who was also chosen of the churches to travel with us with this grace, which is administered by us to the glory of the same Lord and declaration of your ready mind, avoiding this, that no man should blame us in this abundance, which is administered by us, providing for honest things, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. And we have sent with them our brother, whom we have oftentimes proved diligent in many things, but now much more diligent upon the great confidence which I have in you. Whether any do inquire of Titus, he is my partner and fellow helper concerning you. Or our brethren be inquired of, they are the messengers of the churches and the glory of Christ. Wherefore, show ye to them, and before the churches, the proof of your love, and of our boasting on your behalf. I'm sorry for such a lengthy reading, if your mind is soft this morning. But the lengthy reading was to point out Paul's care in identifying certain men that were going to come to carry that liberality across the Mediterranean Sea. You know, for a church to make a large collection, and Paul did stir them up to a collection... 1 Corinthians chapter 16 was telling them every Lord's Day, the first day of the week, you are to set in store funds for the gathering that I'm going to make when I send men to your church. It was a large collection. And it was going to disappear out of their country. And here's what he took care of. Avoiding any charge of blame that could be brought against them. Because the men that were assigned to it were men well known in the churches. Titus, if, if anybody asks about Titus... He is my partner and my fellow helper. If they ask about any of the others, they are the servants of Christ and are the churches of Christ. They've already proven themselves far and wide. Choose ye out seven men of honest report. Men that you can put in the office of deacon and sleep every night knowing that the funds that you give to the Lord will be used for the Lord's work and for the things that the New Testament describes and for the the goals that we give them. The third qualification. Well, before I leave that second one, are you of honest report? Do you have a reputation that you are honest? That you tell the truth? That you don't exaggerate? That you perform your word? That when you say you're going to be somewhere, you're there? When you're going to do something, you do it? That you, when you believe, that you say when you believe something, you believe it? And you're consistent with that belief. Are you of honest report? When funds are given to you by your employer, or privileges, or access to files, or other valuables in your company, does your company know that they are as safe as they could be when they're in your hands? Honest report. It's a testimony to the gospel of Jesus Christ when you're of honest report. It goes on to say, men full of the Holy Ghost. And we want to deal with that in our second assembly and deal with praying more for the Holy Ghost. The Lord's convicted me the last couple of nights that we need to be reminded, all of us, that we need to pray more to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And I don't mean to get a baptism that Benny and others describe, but that we might be full of that Holy Ghost that is able to, by His power, 
shed abroad the love of God in our hearts and reveal to us the full dimensions of the love of Jesus Christ until we are filled with all the fullness of God. Amen. That's what we want to pray for. They're to be full of the Holy Ghost. During the apostolic age, to be full of the Holy Ghost, carried with it apostolic signs and wonders, which went away when the apostles went away. You can see that by how it describes Stephen. It says in verse 5, they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost. And then it says in verse 8, and Stephen, full of faith and power. He had Holy Ghost power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. I want you to know the book of Acts and learn it. Acts chapter 6 is the selection and ordination of seven deacons. Acts chapter 7 is a sermon by the first of those deacons. Acts chapter 8 is the evangelistic efforts of the second of those deacons when there was a great persecution in Jerusalem that scattered the church abroad. So you have three chapters dedicated to deacons in a certain respect. Acts 6, 7, and 8. And we can see that Stephen had the power of the Holy Ghost But we want to look for men that have the Holy Ghost in this era of time. And we measure them by their spiritual mindedness. Do they love the Lord Jesus Christ? Do they speak of Him? Do they speak of heaven and heavenly things? Or are they earthly minded? Do they mind earthly things? The contrast is enormous. In Philippians chapter 3, those who mind earthly things are called belly worshipers and the enemies of the cross of Christ. Those who are spiritually minded love the things the Spirit of God bears witness of. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth, that He is the Son of God, the Savior of their sins, that there is redemption in His blood, justification by His grace, glorification in store, An eternal inheritance coming. And they live separate from this world. We want men full of the Holy Ghost. And we want to measure that fullness of the Holy Ghost by New Testament standards for our church. There will be a very real division between the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. A very real division. His love of Christ and his love of heaven will be paramount to him. It'll be visible and known. You'll know the Holy Ghost is in him. Because he speaks things that match up with Scripture that the Holy Spirit wrote. These are the words of the Holy Spirit. And so he talks about things of the Bible. He talks like the Bible. He's concerned about the same things that are in the Bible. This is a man full of the Holy Ghost in our day. That's who we want. Oh, this is so different than making sure that we honor some important family in the church by making sure that someone with their last name is ordained a deacon. As I say this to the shame of our nation and many churches, how they select. Mm -hmm. Full of the Holy Ghost. Holy living. Holy speaking. Holy ambition. To fulfill a spiritual goal for their lives and their families. Amen. What else does it say in Acts chapter 6 and verse 3? They are to be full of wisdom. Full of wisdom. Now we read a verse of Proverbs a day, and we comment on it, and we weigh it carefully, I hope. The book of Proverbs was given to help young men acquire wisdom. Prudence. Understanding. Knowledge. To give subtlety and discretion to the young man. That's what we read Proverbs for. So, when it says full of wisdom, we really mean a man that operates by the practical application of the book of Proverbs. And what a book it is. Wisdom is the power of right judgment. Wisdom knows what to do, how to do it, and when to do it. That's what wisdom is. Wisdom is... Close to knowledge and prudence and discretion and understanding. Wisdom is having good judgment so that when you make a decision, it is a sound decision. It is a circumspect decision. 
I appreciate those of you who were thankful for the reminder, a simple, simple reminder from Ephesians chapter 5, that wisdom is circumspection. Circumspection means that it's in a circle. And you inspect every angle or degree in that circle. All 360 of them. You take a complete look at all aspects of the matter you're dealing with. Circumspection. You look carefully at everything that could be affected. If you're hasty, you can't do it. If you're hasty, a matter, a matter is thrown up to you. Oh, I know what we, well, we just ought to do this. No, no man is that wise on earth today. You need to slow down and consider all things well and make sure that you're remembering that back over here, there is an ugly angle facing you that you need to weigh in your decision. Circumspection means you gotta slow down. Haste makes waste may be an American idiom, but it's a Proverbs verity. He that hasteth with his feet sinneth. The New Testament sin is called heady, meaning to fall headlong after something because you're not guarding your steps and thinking carefully about where you're going. We want a man full of wisdom. Look at Proverbs just for a minute, just to remind us. And men, don't be bored or think this is a waste of time. Forget deacons for a minute. Ask yourself, am I a man full of wisdom? Or am I a man that's got a little bit in a pocket? Or am I a man that's really a fool? Those proverbs that are sent out to you each day, they take time, but it's a pleasure. You should take a few minutes to read them and say, I want to live that way. Right. I want to live that way. I want that sense. I want that judgment. I want that subtlety and discretion that's taught by those verses. Proverbs chapter 12. We're talking about wisdom. The whole book's about, the whole book of Proverbs is about wisdom. Oh Lord, fill us with this wisdom. Amen. Please, Lord. We sometimes get confused at these 850 Proverbs, but synthesize them all in our hearts and our minds that we'll remember them and we'll operate by them. 1223. A prudent man concealeth knowledge, but the heart of fools proclaimeth foolishness. A prudent man doesn't say everything. Sometimes he holds it in, but he's a prudent man. And what does he have inside? He has knowledge inside. When you see someone that babbles quickly and babbles a lot, guess what? There's a lot of hot air coming out and not a whole lot of knowledge. Because a prudent man holds it in and conceals it. He isn't out to show off what he knows. He's thinking very soberly and carefully about it. 12.23. How about 13.16? Proverbs 13.16. Every prudent man dealeth with knowledge, but a fool layeth open his folly. You get a fool talking and pretty, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Oh, Lord, save us from, there's so many of them. Have you ever been one? Oh. Shut up. And think about it first. A prudent man, every prudent man, dealeth with knowledge. He thinks very soberly, what do I know about this angle over here on this matter? If we choose this course, we are going to have this consequence over here. Oh, that's good stuff when you start thinking that way. We're too hasty. So you want men that are full of wisdom. Are you full of wisdom? Or do you blast off with a quick answer? Lord, slow us down. Let every man be swift to hear. You've got two ears to hear swiftly. Slow to speak. That's why you're limited. Can you imagine if we had two? Swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, but quick to wisdom. Lord, make us quick to wisdom. Look at 14.8. Do you love the Bible? Do you know what I said earlier today? It's got history. It's got apocalyptic prophecy. It's got tight logical reasoning. It's got poetry. It's got this. All in one book. There's no book like this on earth. 
ever tried the little comic book called the Koran? Have you ever read that thing? Ever read the Book of Mormon? I've read them both. What trash compared to the Holy Bible? Thank you, Lord. This book is the heritage of your family. Teach your children to love this book. Read this book every day. It's got everything for us. It's got songs in it. It's got wonderful, little, short, pithy sayings of wisdom based on the observations of a very wise man that had unlimited capital and power to experiment with everything in life. It's got a book of philosophy. We learn this. You can be a man full of wisdom. All those of you that are older than 30 wish you could be younger again, possibly. That you could go back and accumulate more of this book, don't you? I do. I wish I could be five right now and hear these words with the same sense of conviction that I'm speaking them so I could start all over again. How about 14.8? I think that's where I was going. The wisdom of the prudent is to understand his way, but the folly of fools is deceit. The wisdom of a prudent man understands his way. He knows where he's going, why he's going there, and how he's going to get there, and what difficulties he's going to face, and what defenses he has against them. He understands his way. This is to be full of wisdom. Let's go back to Acts 6. We could read the whole book of Proverbs trying to help ourselves, and by the time I've gone through five verses, your mind is kind of bloated. We have very weak minds. Therefore, it requires a little bit of effort in the Word of God every single day. You cannot expect to come in here. It doesn't matter if I were gifted. It doesn't matter if I were faithful. As I should be, like the Apostle Paul, in preaching his Word, you can't do it on the Lord's Day. Our minds are too small. They get bloated, they get tired. Your bottom gets tired, which affects your mind. It's got to be every day. Make it twice a day. Pick up this book and read its precious words and let them sink into your soul a little bit at a time. You will will accumulate the wisdom of God. Full of Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. Oh, those are great men, aren't they? Men, men that have an honest reputation and they're full of the Holy Ghost and they're full of wisdom. So far, so good. Aren't, those are great men, aren't they? Don't anybody mock a deacon that's chosen according to the Scriptures. No wonder, Paul said, they that have executed the office of a deacon well purchase to themselves a good degree in Christ Jesus. Right. Let's go to 1 Timothy 3. 1 Timothy 3. And let's look at the qualifications that are here. Again, let me say to you, while we're trying to think and we want to prepare ourselves to choose men that have these qualifications, let's ask ourselves, do I have them? 1 Timothy 3, 8. Let me read down through verse 13. And I want you to note that the words I read when I began this discourse, verses 14 and 15, immediately follow upon the description of a deacon. 1 Timothy 3.8, likewise must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre, holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. And let these also first be proved. Then let them use the office of a deacon, being found blameless. Even so must their wives be grave, not slanderers, sober, Faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. For they that have used the office of a deacon well, purchase to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. And these instructions were given by the Holy Spirit upon Paul to Timothy and thus to us on how to behave ourselves in the house of God. This is the pattern received from heaven by God's hand upon Paul. Verse 8, likewise, is a, is a word that's used often when there are lists of qualifications or character traits or commandments being given to a variety of parties. The bishops have been dealt with in the first seven verses, and likewise, there is a list of qualifications for the deacons in the next 
six verses. We have the like we have the word likewise used in other places where we have husbands, then wives, then children, and others addressed. Likewise, meaning we had some qualifications for the bishop, now we have them for deacons. And so we move through first Timothy chapter three. They're to be grave. Likewise must the deacons be grave. That is a word that is no longer used. No one is grave today. We live in a frivolous, foolish, jesting, sitcom generation. Very few are grave. There's one man in this assembly who took his oldest son last night to a wake or to visitation for a funeral. And I knew that when I found out they were going, that it was going to be to the profit of their souls if they attended with a proper spirit. Because Solomon tells us in Ecclesiastes 7, it is better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. And the the righteous will lay this to heart. Because it will make you wiser to go into a funeral than it will be to go to a party. Because that is the end of all men. Looking at the grave will help make you grave. To be grave is to be serious, sober, reflective, conscientious, concerned about your life. Not letting life take you, but you dictating your life in very sober ways to please God. But everything in our nation, the communication that you have at work, If you turn on that devil's box in your home for very many minutes, it's just laughter, laughter, laughter. Studio laughter, which is fake laughter. Just to keep that laughter coming. And do you know what Solomon called that in Ecclesiastes chapter 7? It's the cackling and cracking of thorns. It's the cackling of fools and the cracking of thorns. Grave. So you want to look in this church for men that are serious about their lives. Life is not a joke to them. Life is not a sport or a game to them. Life is serious because they know they're going to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and give an account of their lives. Now we need to ask ourselves, am I grave? Am I grave? Look at Titus chapter 2. I want you to see how important this is. For the time being... Let's consider that grave and sober are pretty close together. They are, but there's a little bit of difference that we're going to get to when we get to the deacon's wives. Look at what Paul told Titus to preach. First of all, look at verse 15 of the second chapter. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. This is real Bible preaching that covers the matters found in Titus chapter 2. These things. He starts off with older men. Look at Titus chapter 2 and verse 1. But speak thou the things which become sound doctrine. This is sound doctrine. It's not a confession of faith that sits on a shelf. We believe certain things, those things that are taught in the Bible, but we also do certain things. And we want the practical doctrine of God's word as well. Verse 2, that the aged men be sober, grave. So older men are to be sober and grave. Then it says... In verse 4, that the older women are to teach the young women to be sober. In verse 4. Then in verse 6, young men likewise exhort to be sober-minded. Then verse 7, for Titus himself. In all things, showing thyself a pattern of good works. In doctrine, showing uncorruptness, gravity. Notice that. Old men are to be grave and sober. Young men are to be exhorted to be sober-minded. Old women must be sober in order to teach young women to be sober. And Timothy had better be an example of all gravity. It is lost today. You know, I have made this comparison, and I hope you can understand it and take it for value and not be critical of it. But when you look at a picture of your grandparents or your parents before 1950, they weren't grinning like Chuck E. Cheese. Have you ever noticed that? Because life was serious. They didn't watch sitcoms when they got home from work at night. 
They went out and milked cows if they came home from work at night. If they didn't come home from work at night, they came in from the field where they had worked, and it was still time to milk the cows. And they watched cattle die. They watched calves birthed and die. When a relative died, they died in their house. Death was around them. Life was serious. And so when you look at their pictures, you might look at them and say, they never had any fun in life. Oh, they did. They did. They had all the pleasures that God describes in his word that are justifiable for the just. But they didn't grin like little foolish idiots. I'm not saying that you can't smile when you go to the photographer. I'm just saying, take a look and see the difference between the generations. One's grave and one isn't. And we live in the generation that isn't. So guess what? We have to look a little twisted to the world. We're a little peculiar. They're going to call us strange, as 1 Peter chapter 4 describes, because we're more serious than they are. If you get along with them well and they don't think you're a little too serious, then you have a problem. If we're going to be as grave as the Bible wants us to be, as I just showed you from Titus. These men that we want as deacons should be grave because what they're doing is serious and God is serious. And life is serious. And the day of judgment that's only a few hours away for all of us is very serious. Grave. Ephesians 5, please. Ephesians 5, one more passage on this subject. One more passage I'll turn you to. I'll mention Matthew 12 and verse 36. Jesus said that in the day of judgment men shall give an account of every idle word. No wonder Solomon wrote in the multitude of words there wanteth not sin. So let your words be few. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3. Let's back up to verse 1. Is my brother paying attention in here who loves thinking about being the sons of God? I think he is. Look what it says about the sons of God. Verse 1. Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children. Let's be dear children of our Father in heaven. And walk in love as Christ also hath loved us. And have given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savour. So how can we be the dear children of God? We can walk in love and love, our, love his other children who are our brothers and sisters. Every father loves a happy family where the children love each other and help each other. How do we give God his happy family? We love one another. That's the positive. Just like Christ loved us. But verse 3 is going to tell us some things we can't have. But fornication... The casual sex of 2008. But fornication and all uncleanness, that's everything short of it. Or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. And I could go on and read more, but I want to stop right there. So that you don't lose what it just said. If we want to be the dear children of God, and if we want to walk and live like the sons of God, then we will walk in love. That's the positive rule of verse 2. But then verse 4 is going to tell us no filthiness out of this trap, this cesspool, that that Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, nor foolish talking, nor jesting. The poking little jibes and, and jokes that are so common in our generation... The wisdom of the Word of God is telling us to avoid that. We want deacons that don't do that, that are grave. The point being gravity, sobriety. It's lost today. So we must look like Neanderthals to society to hold the pattern of God's Word. Men are going to be judged for these sins, and they're not convenient things. Do you know what's convenient to come out of your mouth? Do you know what really helps other people? Do you know what lifts them up and makes them all happy? The giving of thanks. If you're always giving thanks for something, that is a positive person that we want around. It lifts people up. 
foolish talking, somebody cracks a joke or makes a sarcastic remark, half the people that hear that go home and they're bleeding from it, and the person that spoke it doesn't even know they hurt somebody that much because it's not convenient to tell jokes. Do you know the other place in the Bible where it says it's not convenient? Do I need to remind you? Sodomy. Sodomy is not convenient. Two men don't fit together very well. Just leave it at that. That's what the Bible says. Sodomy is not convenient. God rewires the pagans of this world who will not give him glory as their creator God and who will not be thankful. He rewires their minds so they do things that are not convenient. And right here it says, jesting and foolish talking is not convenient either. It is not fit, appropriate, noble, uplifting, or helpful to those around you. Let's hate it. Let's be grave. First Timothy chapter 3. If this is serious, Amen. the whole Bible is serious. Right. One second, one second before the Lord Jesus Christ in the great day, and you will wish that I had been more serious as your pastor. One second. Right. I cannot convey to you what it is going to be like when we give an account of every idle word. Grave. That's the kind of men we want. They're not to have a double tongue. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 8, not double-tongued, which condemns any hypocrisy or dissimulation. No exaggeration, no deceit, no fudging of the facts, no double-tongued, no saying one thing and doing another but always following through consistently with what's been said. Deacons have to be consistent, always honest, straightforward, no word games. It's too important. You, as the church, are trusting them to take care of the matters of the church. So when they say they're going to do something, we want them to do exactly what they said. So you need to look out among you men that are not double-tongued. They always do what they say. This is not so much about their doctrine, because we're going to get their doctrine in verse 9. This is about their way of life. Do they speak consistently? Are they straightforward in their description of things, and do they do them? They must clearly say what they believe, and they must perform according to their words. A double tongue or hypocritical speech would be confusing to the church. It would be dangerous for the church, because the church wouldn't know what's really going to be done after a promise has been made of how it will be done. So they they need to be men, not only of honest report with an honest reputation, but they always speak clearly, precisely, and they do what they say. They don't say one thing and do another. These are related. But the Holy Spirit does not waste words. So we want men that always keep their word. They're not double-tongued. A deacon cannot do anything that would lead to confusion or doubts, or it'll just cause trouble. One more. Before our break, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 8, Likewise must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine. Not given to much wine. What does it mean to be given to something? Is the, I think the first thing we ought to ask and answer. Right. To be given in the way of our King James Bibles to something is to be inclined disposed, addicted, or prone to that thing. We have expressions right here of not being given to filthy lucre. Where is that found? I need to show it to you. You may want to see it. It's Titus chapter 1, I believe. Not given to filthy lucre, the last five words of Titus 1, 7. Not given to filthy lucre. So let's... This will help us think about it. Not given to much wine. Not given to filthy lucre. When it says not given to filthy lucre, does it mean you can't use money? No. Does it mean that you can't be disposed, prone, inclined, or addicted to money? Oh, yes, it does. It means that money is not important to you. You don't have a vulnerability to money. No one's ever seen you have a a real problem with covetousness. That's what it means not to be given to filthy lucre. You use money. We all carry it in our wallets. 
We have to use it. It's our means of exchange in this country, but we're not given to it. We don't, our lives aren't directed by it. We aren't making decisions to get more of it. You know, we thank the Lord when more comes, but we don't trust in it because it's not that important to us. And it means the same thing when it says, not given to much wine. A, ma- a deacon cannot be disposed or addicted or inclined or prone to much wine. He can't be vulnerable to much wine. He can't have a great ambition for much wine. Much wine is not important to him. He doesn't make decisions that involve much wine. He, he holds his hand up and is careful with wine and much wine. You know, I was raised all my life to believe that not given to wine meant that you could never touch wine. But that isn't what the Bible teaches. Deuteronomy chapter 14 will remind us, just a couple of verses to remind us of what the Bible says about wine. God made wine, and He made it for a particular reason. And He made it to, he made it to make glad the heart of man. He made it for its alcoholic properties of relaxing a man. And a glass of wine with a meal, both of which relax your central nervous system, is a very pleasant thing and something God endorses. Throughout the Bible, Deuteronomy chapter 14 is describing one of the tithes that the Israelites were to use. It starts in verse 22. And it's a tithe of 10% of gross income to be used on going to the place of God's choice where they could celebrate before the Lord. Now, that is a required vacation using 10% of gross income. That's not a bad tithe, is it? And you did that to please the Lord. But look what it says about that money. Verse 25, it says, Then thou shalt turn it into money. If it's a long trip, take your stuff, your produce, your harvest, your increase of that year, and convert it to cash. Verse 25, And bind up the money in thine hand, and shalt go unto the place which the Lord thy God shall choose. Shiloh, Jerusalem, wherever it would be. Verse 26, And thou shalt bestow that money for whatsoever thy soul lusteth after. For oxen, filet mignon, New York strip, or for sheep, a rack of lamb, lamb chops, or for wine, or for strong drink, or for whatsoever thy soul desireth. And thou shalt eat there before the Lord thy God, and thou shalt rejoice, thou and thine household. This is part of the worship of God to use wine and strong drink. I remember the first time this verse was shown to me. It was, what? What? I've spent... This, that my life so far, fighting any use of wine or strong drink, because that's what I was taught, and that's what my father was taught. Then you see the Bible, and you have a choice to make. Am I going to go with what men say, or with what the Bible says? And this is a worship service with your whole family. Get, you've got 10% of gross income to spend in a few days. Does that sound like pretty good eating? This is not McDonald's. McDonald's doesn't yet serve wine or strong drink, nor do they have roast oxen. That horse meat that they sell as burgers is not cattle. You know, you know what I mean. I love that horse meat as much as anyone in here. It's not really horse meat. Don't email me, please. Don't email McDonald's about me. I'll, this verse is wonderful. The Lord is so good. Take 10% of your gross income and go worship before me with your family. Get whatever you want. When was the last time your children got to, you took your children to a restaurant that had a, a wide price range in the menu and you told them, get whatever you want. This is the Lord to us, our Father in heaven. Get whatever you want. Whatsoever your soul lusts after. Steak, lamb, wine, strong drink. You know, there's those... There's those men that want to lie with the Bible and say that wine, whenever it is commended, is grape juice, and wine, whenever it is condemned, is alcoholic. Oh, that's cute. The wine that's commended in the Bible, when you drink too much of it, gets men drunk. There was no such thing as grape juice in the Bible. The new wine makes people as drunk as fast as old wine. New wine means it's of the current year's vintage. The bottle's going to say 2007 on it. 
old wine means, it's going to say 2003 on it. New wine makes people drunk as fast as old wine. That's why Peter said on the day of Pentecost, these men are not drunk because they've been accused of being drunk with new wine because Peter said, listen, it's 9 o'clock in the morning. Men don't drink wine in the morning. But they were accused of being drunken with new wine. But look at what it tells us here. It tells us what kind of wine it's talking about because of what's connected to it, strong drink. Right. And that doesn't mean you got three tablespoons of Hershey's chocolate in your milk instead of two. It's strong drink. It's other intoxicating beverages which men have distilled or created for time immemorial. When Noah got off the ark, what was the first thing he planted? A vineyard. He drank too much and was drunk, and that is sin. Psalm 104. Psalm 104. We are the strangest Baptists in the whole world, I think. We don't have musical instruments, but we endorse the drinking of wine. Now, that is just strange. I hope it's as strange as the Bible. I hope it's as strange as the Bible. Look what, look what the Lord tells us in Psalm 104 and verse 14. He ca- Psalm 104, 14. He causeth the grass to grow for the cattle and herb for the service of man, that he may bring forth food out of the earth. Aren't you glad for all the wonderful things we eat? Amen. Some of you are shown a salad and you say, that's what food eats. <laughs> Meaning that you'd like your salad in another form. I like the way I can get 100 pounds of salad in a one-pound steak. Amen. Both are in this 14th verse. He causeth the grass to grow for the cattle. You know, they chew that grass so much, they've got to cough it up and chew it again. Isn't that wonderful that they do that for you? So that you can slice through a tender steak. And get all that grass that they've chewed on all night long. And herb for the service of man that he may bring forth food out of the earth. Verse 15. And wine that maketh glad the heart of man. And oil to make his face to shine. And bread which strengtheneth man's heart. That's what God makes out out of the earth. He makes bread to make our heart strong. And the more we read about nutrition and vitamins and fiber... We know that bread has a place for the strength of our hearts. He makes wine to make glad that heart. Because a glass of wine relaxes that heart. And he makes oil to make the face to shine. Because if you didn't have oil in your diet, especially in the Middle East, you would dry out. Right. Can you tell the difference when you're taking extra vitamin E? Can you feel it? Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, try it. Don't. It's not necessary. Oil in the diet comes through in your skin and keeps you healthy. Proverbs 31 will give us the contrast and the wisdom that we're trying to learn. Proverbs 31, verse 4. It is not for kings. Proverbs 31, 4. This is what Lemuel's mother is teaching him before she gets to the virtuous woman. Verse 4. It is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes strong drink, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the judgment of any of the afflicted. For men in an office, when they're serving in that office, to drink wine is to to depress their central nervous system and cause them to be less sober and critical than they should be in defending the cause of the afflicted. You know, God told Aaron and his sons, don't you dare drink wine when you go in to offer my sacrifices because you'll be too relaxed and you will not have the focus on my ordinances as you should, when they were not in the tabernacle, this is Leviticus 10, 9 and 10, when they were not in the tabernacle doing service, they could drink wine. They had the best of all the nation's wine. It was brought to them as a tithe. But he said, don't you dare drink when you go in to offer sacrifice. And here's the warning here about those in authority. And when a deacon is administering church funds, and that's part of his job, he can't be a man given to much wine. He can't be vulnerable or disposed or prone or addicted to much wine. But look what it says if we keep reading. Verse 6. Give strong drink unto him that is ready to perish, and wine unto those that be of heavy hearts. Let him drink and forget his poverty and remember his misery no more. 
alcohol in the limited form that it comes in wine. Wine can't go above 14% alcohol because it quits making alcohol. As soon as the sugar and the yeast combine and get to 14% alcohol, the yeast is killed by the alcohol and the, the fermenting stops. A glass of wine with a meal relaxes a man. If he's had a bad day at work, he relaxes and he forgets some of that pain and misery. And the Lord, incur- the Lord commends the use of it for that purpose. But a man in authority, like the king here, like the deacon in 1 Timothy chapter 3, is not to be given to much of it. He's not to be prone or disposed to it. Let's go back to 1 Timothy 3. I hope that you are established on that subject. You know, it's one of the subjects that we get in conflict with people because they don't understand. They've never really done a search of the Bible itself. Jesus drank wine all the time. Forget the feast at Cana. Jesus drank wine all the time, and no one wants to admit that. Because wine was the beverage of choice in Israel. Why would you drink anything else? You would not waste a vineyard producing grape juice. Grape juice is a nasty drink compared to wine. Because it has no effect. Wine was to make glad the heart of man. A vineyard was for producing wine. Look at, let me read what it says about Jesus. John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine. And ye say, he hath a devil. Why did John the Baptist come that way? He was a Nazarite from his mother's womb. Nazarites didn't drink wine while their vow was upon them. As soon as the vow ended, they went and drank wine. John the Baptist was a Nazarite for life. What did he eat instead? Locusts and wild honey. He didn't eat bread or drink wine. And the Jews said of him, he has a devil. The son of man is come eating and drinking. Eating what? Bread. Drinking what? Wine. And ye say, behold, a gluttonous man... And a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. They would not have called Jesus of Nazareth a wine-bibber, a drunkard, if he was drinking Welch's. Welch's is only a hundred years old. He was drinking wine, and he drank it all the time. It was his beverage of choice like it was everyone else's. In moderation. Be not drunk with wine, Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18 tells us, wherein is excess. Excess. It's the same excess we can get into with bread. If you eat too many pieces of pizza, you're a glutton. We are to enjoy bread to strengthen our hearts, not bread in a gluttonous way, which is excess. Gluttony and drunkenness are the same thing. But it's amazing how many Christian gluttons will condemn the drinking of wine. We want to be sober and disciplined and temperate in our use of both. First Timothy chapter 3, and let's finish. These deacons are not to be given to much wine. There is a grading of responsibility. If you go back to verse 3, it's the bishops under consideration that says not given to wine. The deacons are not given to much wine, which is the same level of temperance, and dis, let me tell you, temperance movement. The temperance movement. What did they mean by the word temperance? Abstinence. abstinence. Does temperance in the Bible mean abstinence? No. no. Temperance in the Bible means self-discipline. The bishop, because he has spiritual responsibilities, is not to be given to wine. Not to be prone or addicted, inclined, disposed to wine. The deacon, to much wine. Church members, It doesn't say anything except, be not drunk with wine. They can enjoy wine with liberty, but they cannot drink to excess and be drunk. Drunkenness is the sin. Gluttony is the sin. Bread is not the cause of gluttony. Wine is not the cause of drunkenness. It is the evil heart of man that abuses God's creation in both. So, back to the deacon. We must have men that are temperate in their use of wine. They cannot be given to much wine or prone to it. Oh, brethren, to be given to something, you know, we're to be given to hospitality. You know, there's things we're not to be given to, like filthy lucre. 
But there's things we ought to be given to, like hospitality, Romans 12, 13. Are you addicted to hospitality? Are you prone to it, disposed to it, and inclined toward it? Let us be given to those things God tells us to be and not be given to those things he warns us against. Are you a man that is temperate in your use of wine? This is the word of the Lord to all of us. Are you a man today that is of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, grave, not double-tongued, and not given to much wine? Do those character traits describe you? If they don't, confess your faults and sins to the Lord and be purged of your iniquity. And let us line ourselves up with God's requirements and qualifications, even if you don't end up being a deacon. Every woman whether it's applicable, should apply them as well to her life. This is the word of the Lord. God's hand was heavy upon David so that he had a pattern, a blueprint for Solomon to build the temple. God's hand was heavy upon Paul so that he could put in writing for Timothy what was to guide the New Testament church. It does not matter what the opinion of any man or all men might be. What does the Bible say about deacons and about all other things? Let us guard our speech. You know, thinking about gravity... I I would say that that's the most dangerous sin that we have tempting us every day is the foolish talking and jesting that is so easy to come out of our mouths. Let's examine our speech before the God of heaven and confess our sins and be grave in our speech. Lord, hold us back from foolish talking and jesting. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.